Well, if you have your Bibles or you have a Bible in your home or access to one, if you would just uh, go ahead and take that out and turn with me to uh, the book of Exodus. And so, like I said, we are in a sermon series we call The Storyline of the Bible. And the goal is on the first Sunday in January, or actually the second Sunday of January, we started in Genesis chapter 1. And our goal is by the end of the year is to end up in Revelation uh, chapter 22, uh, the end there. But uh, we know about goals and plans in 2020, don't we? I mean, just all that gets thrown out of the window. But thankfully, through this live stream, we've been able to stay on track. And also, I can't think of a, another sermon series that we possibly would do that could speak to us as much um, in this time as where we are, where the Lord has us right now, especially as we come into this time of looking at, as I said earlier, the children of Israel and their exodus out of Egypt, heading toward the promised land. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 14. That's where we're going to pick up at the very last verse in chapter 14, and then we'll read uh, a portion of chapter 15. Exodus 14, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his, ho- and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like a stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your, with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, we say this, Lord, as we say often here at the Point Community Church, that your word, in your word, you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed your nature. You have revealed your character to us, Lord. And we're thankful for that, Father. Father, in this this time, as I open up your word, as I preach it and teach it to whoever may be watching, Lord. Lord, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the Holy Spirit empower the preaching and may the Holy Spirit empower the hearing, Lord. May you do what only you can do, Lord, as you work, Lord, as your omnipresent spirit works 
work here in this room and work in the homes and in the other rooms where folks may be watching, Lord. And Lord, may we be challenged and may we be changed by your word. May we be challenged and may we be changed by the truth of your redemption that has been worked, that has been wrought in your son, Jesus Christ. That may we see him as beautiful and may we see our lives as opportunities to worship you. In your name we pray, amen. What we see um, today in this text is uh, kind of the big idea that we're gonna uh, be, be um, talking about this morning is just this, that God establishes the worship of his people. And what do I mean by that is this, is that worship is the, the right response to the character and the work of God. That whenever the people of God come to understand God's character and God's work, that the proper response to knowing God, the proper response to seeing God as creator and as redeemer, the proper response in that is that we worship. And so we'll define what worship is later in the text, but let me just lay a little bit of context for you. I know we're dropping into the middle of a story. Maybe you're not familiar with the book of Exodus and that's okay, or maybe you're rusty on it and that's okay. Here's what happens here in Exodus is Exodus is opened up and and what the, the Bible tells us is for some 430 years, the children of Israel, that's God's promised people. That's the people that God has established. He's promised to his, uh, to his servant Abraham that he will have children, a child and then children and then grandchildren. And then ultimately they would be a people. So these are the people that belong to uh, Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That's why they're the Israelites and they're living in Egypt. And there in Egypt, they are slaves. They've been slaves for maybe as many as 400 years, but not only have they been slaves in this time, but in this time, it appears that God has been silent. There's not been a prophet in the land, or at least there's no recording of that. It's not that God has spoken, God hasn't come down, that for some 400 years, his people have, uh, have, have languished in Egypt as slaves. And God has seemingly been absent from them. And then all of a sudden, as Exodus opens up, it says that God hears the cries of his people. They're crying out to the God that they've heard about, the God of their great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, 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 they know a little bit maybe about this God. And it says, then God hears the cries of his people. God sees the affliction of his people. God remembers the covenant that he's made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God, God moves, God comes down. First of all, that's a good thing for us to know about God. That God isn't absent and distant up in heaven, un, unknowing of what is occurring here on earth. It's not that God is so busy because of the fall, trying to restore and redeem and do and take care of rainforests and take care of seas and take care of all this stuff, that he's too busy and too distant to know the cries of his people, to see his people when we are afflicted and in pain and to remember his oath and his covenant that God see, he hears, he sees, he remembers, and God comes down. That's how God is going to remedy this problem is God is going to come down and God comes down and he appears to his servant, Moses, to the, who's gonna become the prophet Moses, one of the, the central figures in the book of Exodus. And he appears to Moses in a burning bush. And God promises in this appearing to deliver his people out of Egypt. Have you ever heard of the, the Mandela effect? Um, it's kind of like a, a, a phenomenon that, that's happened where, um, where a majority of people, they misremember something. 
They have a, a false memory about some historical figure, some historical fact, some other thing. They have a false memory of it, majority of the people. It's taken from uh, the person Nelson Mandela that they, they did kind of a poll and they asked people and how did Nelson Mandela pass away? How did he die? And majority of people said that Nelson Mandela died in the 1980s in a prison in South Africa. And that's not true. That's the false memory. That's the false fact that people, a majority of people remembered. The truth is, is Nelson Mandela was released out of that prison. He goes on to live. He actually goes on to become the president of South Africa. And he doesn't die until 2013, but there's this false memories associated that. This Mandela effect, it intersects with pop culture. Those of you that are my age, born in the mid to late 70s, the early 80s, it intersects with us in, in places like this. Ready to have your mind blown? E.T. never says, E.T. phone home. Like I know, your mind's blown, right? Elliot says, E.T. phone home. I mean, yeah, Elliot says that. E.T. says, E.T. home phone. Now, don't Google that right now because I know you're trying to watch the live stream on your phone or on your device. Just, you're gonna have to trust me or look it up later. Children of the 80s, listen to this. In Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader never says, Luke, I am your father. That's actually Tommy Boy that said that. Darth Vader just says, I am your father. Let's talk about one more. The, the little guy on uh, the Monopoly box, the, the little thing, a monocle that's in his eye. Does the Monopoly guy monocle or no monocle? Raise your hand right now in your living room, wherever you may be. Raise your hand if you think he has a monocle. If you raise your hand, then that's the Mandela effect. That's a false, that's a false memory. That's, a, that's misinformation. That's not, that's not true. Mr. Peanut has the monocle and sadly, Mr. Peanut just recently died in a car accident. And I bring up the Mandela effect because we can have the Mandela effect when it comes to the Bible. We can misremember information. And some of this can be fed by movies and stories that we've heard. In fact, it comes here. The message that God gives to Moses to give to Pharaoh. God says very specifically, I want you to go and I want you to tell Pharaoh a, a message from God, right? That's what he tells Moses. And Moses will do that and he will go some 10 times and he will say to, to, uh, to Pharaoh, what is that message? If you said that message is let my people go, then um, that's partially true. I think that's what Charlton Heston says in his movie, but nevertheless, it's not just let my people go, it's let my people go so that they may worship me, so that they may serve me, so that they may make sacrifices to me, that there's a two-part in that that Moses, that God gives to Moses to say to Pharaoh. And that's so important. It's so important because they are being delivered from slavery in Egypt, but they are being delivered to a relationship of worship through service to God. And that's important for us when we think about this, even as it intersects with our own lives, that you and I as the church, the church of Jesus Christ, those of us who belong to this church, you and I, we've been, we've been saved from the world, but we've been saved to a relationship with Christ, a relationship of worship and a relationship of service to him. We've come and he has delivered us by making himself known to us so that we may know him, love him, worship him by serving him. Back into Exodus, 
God delivers his people in the book of Exodus. He delivers them in a way where only God can receive glory for it, where they know no doubt God has moved, God has done this. God delivers his people on the heels of 10 plagues. And throughout the plagues, God defeats the the false gods of Egypt and he declares himself to be God. The last plague, the 10th plague, which is where we were last week, is the death of the firstborn son. And it's a picture of God's judgment that comes and by God providing, the the people are able to, to, the judgment passes over them by God providing a substitutionary sacrifice for them in their place. It's a picture of God's judgment and God's deliverance that comes as the people by faith, they offer up a substitutionary sacrifice. A spotless lamb dies in the place instead of the firstborn son. God's judgment comes, but yet out of that God's judge, the Israelites, they're able to, God's judgment to pass over them through the death of this, of this substitutionary sacrifice. That God's deliverance, his redemption and his salvation then, it becomes the very foundation for the people of God. It becomes foundation for everything, that everything the people of God are to, are to do and, it, and are to be flows out of what God has done for them. That's foundational truth. That's a principle throughout the Bible. The foundation isn't what we do for God, but the foundation of our relationship with God is what God has done for us. And after the 10th plague, when the 10th plague is over and the firstborn has has died all over Egypt, Pharaoh wakes up in the night and he hears the the cries of the moms and the dads of the Egyptians as as they realize that their firstborn son has died. And Pharaoh summons Moses and he tells Moses the words that you've been waiting to hear throughout four chapters of the Bible. He says, tell your people, tell the Israelites to get up and to get out. Take their flocks, take their herds, take their stuff and get out of Egypt. Get out of here, be gone. And as the children of Israel, as they get up and they, they grab some unleavened bread, as God has commanded them, that they grab their flocks, they grab their herds. Then they also get to do this as they get to plunder Egypt. They go to their masters, their one-time slave masters, and they say to them, hey, we're getting out of here, but before we go, give us a gift. And the Egyptians, they give them gold, they give them silver, they even give them clothing. And that's important. They're leaving out of Egypt and they look like Egyptians They're leaving out and yet they have no idea where they're going. They have no idea where where to turn, where to go. They've heard about this promised land, the land that's been promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They've heard about this promised land, but they've never seen it. They've never been to it. They're confused. And as they leave, once again, God comes down. So God has come down as he's come down in the burning bush. God has come down in the plagues. God has come down as he's provided a substitutionary atonement. God has come down in his judgment as he's passed over. And God comes down again to lead his people out of slavery, to lead them out of Egypt as God descends and he shows up as a, as a cloud of smoke, a, a big cloud during the day and as a pillar of fire at night. This is the means by which they will know where to go. And God leads them. And God leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. He literally leads them into a corner and he tells them to make camp here. Now this is some like, maybe as many as like some have estimated 2.5 million people 
that are leaving out of Egypt that are now making camp on the banks of the Red Sea. And forget social distancing. Governor Bashir would not be very happy with them. They're all camped out in this small confined space into literally into a corner, sprawled out, and then something happens back in Egypt. Once again, God moves in Egypt and this time he moves across Pharaoh's heart. And the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. And it's like Pharaoh comes to his senses. Pharaoh says, what have I done? I've just released all of my slaves. What have I done? And so what Pharaoh does is he summons his army. He summons the chariots. He summons the special forces, the Green Berets, SEAL Team 6, the army rangers. He summons them, and then he also summons the rest of the chariots. He summons his entire army, and he tells them, go get the children of Israel. Arrest them, grab them, make them captive again, and bring them back to me. And here you are, a newly freed slave, an Israelite. You got very little idea of what's really going on. You've experienced these plagues. You're probably fearful. You're camped up in the corner. There's a raging sea on one side and all of a sudden a raging army starts coming at you on the other side. You're literally between a rock and a hard place in this corner. And the people, they begin to murmur and they begin to complain They begin to say to Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us all the way out here on the banks of the Red Sea to die? And then the word of the Lord comes to Moses. And Moses says this in Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. It says, and Moses said to the people this, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Let me just make this as a side note. There's a principle that's at work here and it's a principle that oftentimes God will lead his people into seemingly hard places. He will lead his people into seemingly stuck between a rock and a hard place. He will lead them there in order to frustrate our pride and to show our dependence on him. He will lead us into those places where he can show to us, where we could say that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And God does this here and God delivers his people. He delivers his people, not through their might, not through their power, but through his That as the Egyptians draw closer, God has Moses to simply lift up his staff and then God works a miracle. The Red Sea parts, the wind blows and dries up the ground where the seabed was and the children of Israel cross through it. There's a wall of sea on both sides as they safely traverse through the Red Sea, cross over on the other side. As they reach the other side, the Egyptians, they follow suit. The Egyptians descend onto the same creek bed, the same river bed where they have just crossed. And then all of a sudden their chariots, the wheels of their chariots get clogged up. They begin to be in a panic and, in, and frantic. And then as Moses lets his staff down again, the sea closes back up and all of the Egyptian army is drowned. God's judgment comes upon them and they are all drowned. And God has delivered his people. And what I want us to see today is the response of the people of God to the delivering work of the Lord. 
that God has saved and he has spared and he has delivered and he has redeemed his people out of Egypt and they respond with worship. Look at how this worship is described in Exodus 14 verses 31 and 15.1. It really is a description of what worship looks like. Worship begins as an attitude. It begins as an emotion that we feel. It begins as a controlling principle, a foundational posture of the heart. And it looks like this. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people of God, they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Worship begins as a proper and right fear of the Lord. Now, fear in the Bible doesn't just mean to be afraid, although it does include being afraid. I don't want to diminish what fearing the Lord means by just saying it just means to be in reverence of God because there is a fear, there is a, a holy terror of God that is, that is right and it is true and it is good and it is proper. But a proper response to the power and the holiness of God is to, is to tremble in fear. It's to be afraid. That the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, he speaks of people that, that knowingly, deliberately stay in sin. They hear the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done. They know what sin is. They have knowledge. So they don't stay in sin because of ignorance, but they stay in sin because they're rebellious to the Lord. They stay in sin because their hearts are hard. What the author of Hebrews says, that the only thing that awaits this kind of people is a fearful expectation of judgment. That the Lord will judge all of humanity. And for especially the people who have willingly remained in sin, who go on sinning deliberately, it says the only thing that waits for them is this fearful expectation. They should feel that holy terror right here. And what he says in, even in Hebrews 10, 31 is that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing that the presence of God, as we have said in the past, it is a dangerous place. It is a dangerous place because of the holiness of God. It's not a dangerous place because God is so bad. No, 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 opposite. It's a dangerous place because God is so good. And the truth is we are bad. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the whole point of the story of the Passover, God's judgment. It passes over us, those of us who apply the blood of the substitutionary lamb. That's the first idea of fear. It is to be a holy terror. It is to be rightly, properly afraid of God. But then there is a second. And I don't wanna have a truncated view of the Lord. It is also this picture of letting a fear, this fear drive you to another type of fear. It isn't just to be afraid of the Lord, but it is to show honor to, show, uh, to stand in awe of the Lord. That's what to fear the Lord means. It means to be in awe of him. It means to esteem him. It means to honor him, to tremble before him, to have reverence for him. It means to humble yourself before God. It means not to treat him flippantly. He isn't the man upstairs. God isn't your homeboy. He isn't your buddy. He is the thrice holy God. He is the almighty. He is the true and just one. And we treat him accordingly. We treat him accordingly. 
It says that not only did they fear the Lord, they saw the power of God on display as God delivered them, as God destroyed his enemies and delivered them. Not only did they, did they fear the Lord, but it also it says that they believed in the Lord. The belief isn't just to simply acknowledge the existence of God. Like they did that a long time ago. That's not what it says here when it says they believed in God. It means more than just believing and acknowledging the existence of God. Oh, now I know that God exists. They believed that because they grew up believing in the existence of God. But what it means here is they put their trust in him. We believe in his existence so much that we put our trust in him, that we pull our trust out of the thousands of banks where we once had our trust and we place all of our trust upon the Lord. We pull our trust from our intelligence and from our abilities and from our might and in our power and from our government and from our finances. We pull our trust from all of those places and we place all of our trust in one bank. Our trust is in and upon the Lord. That is what it means to believe the Lord. That we are a people who who recognize and resound and respond and delight in the glory and the greatness of God above all else. It says that they believe in God and in his servant Moses. Now this is important. His servant Moses, the, the correlation here isn't for you to believe in the pastor. I'm not the servant Moses in the text. That's not the parallel in the New Testament. The parallel in the New Testament would be that we believe in the word of God. That's what the servant of Moses is doing here. He's the prophet of God. He's the mediator between them and God. He's speaking on behalf of God. God is revealing his truth. God is revealing himself to Israel, speaking on behalf of God when he speaks. And now the correlation is God's word here. Not only do we put our trust in God, but as we put our trust in God, we put our trust in God's word. And when we trust in God's word, what it means is we submit to God's word. That's what it means. It means that you live in submission. You you believe in God and you believe in God's word to the point of where you submit yourself to that. God's word and the truths in his word, it informs everything about our lives. That what we believe about God as it is declared in the word of God, it informs how we live. We believe that God is to be worshiped. Holy terror and holy all. And if we believe that, then we live a life of humility and submission. That's what it means to worship the Lord. It means to humble yourself, to acknowledge that he is God and you are not. The true worship begins there. It begins as a controlling principle and a foundational posture of your heart. That posture, what does that look like? It looks like humility and submission. It means to, tur- to believe in God and to submit to him. To submit to him by turning away from everything that he has declared in his word as evil, you turn away from that. As everything that he declares in his word as sin, you turn away from that. That you would not offend him or grieve him or you would not, you would not welcome into your life. You would not happily Welcome into your life what God would not confirm in your life and affirm in your life. It means you hate evil. Not only is this a foundational attitude of the people, the attitude of fear and belief, but look how it 
it avails itself. It overflows. This, this posture, it overflows into song. That worship includes this. Song is not the only form of worship, but it's, it's, it's a big one. I mean, as you think about the Bible and think about how the Bible's broken down, I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible. One of the largest books of the Bible is the book of Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible. If you shut your Bible and open it up to the very middle, you're gonna probably land smack dab in the middle of the Psalms. And what the Psalms are, it's a book of prayers and a book of poems and a book of songs unto the Lord. But in fact, what we see here is the first song in the pages of scripture. Now, Adam probably said uh, a spoken word or said a poem early on in Genesis, but now what we find here is the first song recorded in scripture as a response to the work and to the character of God. His people sing. That God has put his redemption on display and they sing a song to the Lord. That God's people, we are called to sing because God's salvation deserves it. That in fact, as we read scripture, the redeemed are the only ones who sing to the Lord. Angels and the angelic hosts, they say things, they shout unto the Lord, but they aren't the ones who sing. Over and over again in scripture, we see the redeemed of God singing unto the Lord. In fact, if we were to fast forward where we're gonna end up sometime in the the, um, winter of 2020, in the book of Revelation, what we're gonna see is we're gonna see the redeemed before the throne of Christ, the lamb. And what are we doing? We're singing. Now that's not all we'll do in heaven. I don't believe that, but yet that will be a huge part of what we do is it will be the redeemed singing to their redeemer. Saints singing in the future. That's the future for many of us, saints singing. And I say that because I know a lot of you probably don't like singing, especially the men that may be watching this. You might, think, might, might not think of yourself as much of a singer. I can't sing, I don't sing. Can't sing on, on, on pitch or on tune or on melody or whatever that may be in a harmony. I can't do it and I understand that. I'm, I'm someone who does enjoy singing but yet can't sing. In fact, this morning I was so fearful in this empty room that you would hear me sing. At one point I turned my mic on so I didn't forget and then I was like, what if I'm not muted? What if I'm coming across? What if I'm part of the worship team? No, right? that would be a terrible thing and yet... What we see here is redeemed people sing. And maybe you say, I'm not a singer. I'm not much of a singer. Well, listen, listen, listen. The work of the spirit is given to the church. It's given to those of us who have been redeemed. And the spirit is bringing about new desires and new abilities. Now, maybe he'll never let you sing as good as, uh, as Kenny Rogers sang, right? Maybe you won't get that gift, right? Maybe it won't be that pure, that sweet, a, a beautiful ballad like, uh, like, like uh, Willie Nelson. You may never sing that good. You're like, really? That's who you think is good? Yeah, that's who I think is good. And you never sing that good. But at least let's work on the new desires. The spirit is birthing in us new desires. And one of those desires should be a desire to sing when you think about how God has redeemed you who God is, how God has loved you. In fact, in Exodus 15, 13, we see that God's people sing because God's character drives it. It's because of, he said, your steadfast love, God, that we sing. I know that love has inspired many a great song, 
But maybe it should be noted that the first song ever recorded in the Bible is inspired by, it's inspired by God's love. It's inspired by God's steadfast love that he has for his people. Listen, church, for us as the people of God, the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea They are defining moments. In the Old Testament, they are defining moments for that people of God. The Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea are defining moments. It's the foundation of the relationship between them and God. That throughout the Old Testament, what you will see is you will see God taking them back time and time again to this. God will give them as a picture of his power and the greatness of his redemption and God's deliverance for his people, he will take them back to this moment, the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. In the Old Testament, the Passover was a moment when God's judgment passed over his people by providing a substitutionary sacrifice. And that is what we see in the cross of Christ. That on the cross is our Passover lamb moment. That on the cross, God is providing a substitutionary sacrifice for anyone who will apply the blood of Christ by faith upon your life and over your life. Then God's judgment for sin, it will pass over you and it will pass over you because it landed on Christ. 2,000 years ago, Christ died on a cross and it is on that cross that Christ is absorbing the wrath and the judgment of God for anyone who would believe in God, for anyone who would submit to God, to anyone who would say, yes, God, whosoever believes upon Christ and upon his work, then it, it is for you. And by faith, you apply that. Christ is the substitutionary sacrifice for the people of God. In the Old Testament, the miracle of the Red Sea is the standard of measurement as the supreme demonstration of God's power. It is the utter defeat of the enemy of God. And do you know what the standard of God, the measurement of God's power is in the New Testament for us? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is when God is flexing his muscles, showing his might, showing his power by him resurrecting his dead son out of the grave. In fact, you can see this in like Ephesians, the first chapter, as the apostle Paul writes to the church and says, oh, how I wish, oh, how I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the hope that you have in Christ, that you would know the power of God his exceedingly great power that he has worked when he raised his son from the dead, that that power is available to you. That in the resurrection, God is defeating all of his enemies, all of his enemies and all of our enemies as his church, death, hell, and Satan are defeated both on the cross and they're ultimately defeated as God raises his son from the dead as the stone is rolled away and his once dead son walks out alive from the tomb. And the resurrection is the event that defines God's victorious power for us as a church. And how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the cross and how do we respond to the resurrection? We respond with fear and belief and with singing. We submit to God and we trust him. 
and we sing. We sing to our Redeemer about his redemption that he has provided. That is why we at the Point Community Church, we sing very, very often of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. That's why we sing Easter songs, even when it isn't Easter. We sing Easter songs year round because of the salvation that God has provided. He deserves it. His character, his grace and his love and his mercy for those of us who believe it drives it. And we sing. So in the words of my dear friend, Brother Joe Buckner, Pastor Derek as you come forward, would you heist us a tune? That's what he says at every golden age. Derek, heist us a tune. As Derek and Nick and Becky come to heist us a tune, may we sing. May our homes and may our cars, may they be filled with song. If you and your family, if you're prepared to take the Lord's Supper, you may do so in worship as you sing. Also at this time, we have offering baskets. We say that here. When we gather as a church, we say there's offering baskets around the rooms, but now we have virtual offering baskets that are out there. We have two offering baskets you can give online. The link will be posted in the comments on the Facebook Live, or you can text 502-206-1800. You can text the simple word give to that number, and there'll be prompts to lead you along that you can give as well. Churches pray. God, as we gather, is your church scattered this morning? Scattered because of a global pandemic. May the cross of Christ and an empty tomb, may that be the foundational truths of our lives. Lord, may that be the main thing. And may we as your church, may we keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the plain thing. And the plain thing is, is that you have given your son up for us so that we may have life, so that we may not fear, so that we may not have doubt, but so that we can know, we can be assured of, there's nothing in this earth that is going to happen that is not consistent with your love and your care and your concern for your children, Lord. And even if we die, that is not some promise to health, wealth, and prosperity. That what that is a promise to is a promise of eternal life. This is not our home. That is the declaration. This earth, this world is Egypt at best. And where you go, where we go, Lord, for those of us who believe in you, is to be with you, Lord. It's to be, spend eternity in heaven. We believe, Lord. We believe in heaven that heaven isn't a figment of our imagination. It isn't something we've dreamt up because this earth is hard, but it is a promise that you've made to your children, Lord. And we know that. We know that you're gracious. We know that you're good. We know that you love us. We know all of that, not because feelings that we feel, not because of, uh, of experiences we experience, not because of our circumstances, but we know that because we look to a cross, a bloody cross, and we look to an empty grave. And Lord, may we worship you. May we worship you. May that be our right response is lives of worship and service to you, Jesus. May we glorify you. May you, King Jesus, be made much of. In your name we pray, amen.